I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Ben Alderson Day, is a professor of psychology at Durham University in the UK, researching the phenomena of voice, hearing, and unusual sensory experiences since 2012. Specializing in atypical cognition and mental health, his work spans cognitive neuroscience, psychiatry, philosophy, and child development. He is the co-founder and co-chair of the Early Career Hallucinations Research Group, a network comprising 24 countries. Before moving to Durham, he completed a PhD on autism at the University of Edinburgh and worked as a research coordinator for a child and adolescent mental health research team in the National Health Service in York. He's the author of Presence, The Strange Science and True Stories of the Unseen Other, which is the topic of today's interview. So Ben, welcome to Delving In. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Ben, how did you become interested in the topic of unusual sensory experiences? Uh, I've been interested in the topic for a while, really, from when I first started studying psychology as a um, as an A-level student, so basically a high school student in the UK. Uh, and um, I guess a formative age, I read um, The Divided Self by R.D. Lang, which was R.D. Lang, for your listeners, was a a Scottish psychiatrist who, really following his experiences in the war, became quite disillusioned with how people with extreme states of mental ill health were being treated in in the British system and and beyond, and influenced by things like existential philosophy of the time and some of the ideas about the psychology of relationships and how people interact. Lang wrote this book, which is all about trying to understand how madness can arise from everyday situations and everyday interactions. And that really captured my imagination. Now, Lang went off in lots of other directions. After writing that, Divided Self came out in 1960. But but for me, it was a real inspiration. Um, Now, as it happens, I then didn't work on that sort of thing for many years. My my training at Edinburgh, and as you say, my, my PhD, which is primarily on autism, I was mainly working in developments on cognitive psychology. But in 2012, I moved to Durham and started working for this new project called Hearing the Voice, which was all about trying to take a new look at what it is to hear voices in the absence of a speaker. And I've, I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, well, one of the things I found uh, really interesting and even exciting about your book is finding a different way to look at these things, because the, the current state of psychiatry, I think, pretends to have more answers than it really does, in my opinion. And I think there's a lot of room for a, a deeper understanding. It's really challenging work, but I, I think that what you're doing is really helpful. Thank you. I think uh, I work with a lot of psychiatrists and know a lot of psychiatrists who are trying their best amidst really difficult challenges. But I think there are an awful lot of just established ways of thinking about some aspects of kind of extreme states of like mental Ill health and and there are established structures for how we do research on this, what kind of things you're supposed to do in terms of, hey, it needs to be a brain imaging study and, hey, we need to be looking at this or that particular brain chemical change. And and so just some of those kind of established ways of working were never the things that really interested me. And I think sometimes the more radical and interesting ideas, the ones coming through from people with lived experience and grassroots movements and just and drawing upon ideas from other disciplines as, we, as well, thinking through these sorts of topics with philosophers, with anthropologists, with sociologists to, to change the frameworks for how we approach topics like psychosis. So the, the cutting edge, so to speak, of your chosen topic is the expansion of our understanding of hallucinations to encompass not just voices, visions and bodily sensation, 
but also something that is somehow more ethereal and yet more basic at the same time, presence. So what is presence and how can those of us who have never had the experience wrap our minds around it? Good question. Presence is basically the feeling that someone else is there that you cannot see or hear. It's a sensation that many of us will have had at some point in our lives, perhaps fleetingly. But for some people, this is an experience which can happen repeatedly, especially in particular contexts. And that might be around the edges of sleep. It might be in a state of sleep paralysis. It might be in the context of grief or bereavement. It might even be in survival situations. The, the, the reason I became interested in presence was via my work on psychosis. It was something that kept coming up again and again for people who were reporting some of those experiences that you describe about voices or visions, the things that we think we know at least a bit about. But often they said to focus just on those things is to really miss the point. You need to understand the bedrock. You need to understand what's behind that. And that, for them, was this sense of presence. And I think one of the definitions that you uh, relate in your book is that a perceived presence is a, is a conscious being. It's a presence of a conscious being who can act in the world. That's the experience anyway. Not necessarily literally true. Some people might say yes. There are a few things to unpack there. The, Sometimes if we, we think about things being conscious, then that kind of loads a lot of possibility onto an entity or another. That This is an intelligence that we have to engage with in some way. This is a thinking and feeling being. But for something to just be a being in our presence, to be in our close environment, is something that has at least control over its own actions. It can behave in a way that is unpredictable to us, but is goal-directed for them. And that might not be in our interests. That might impinge upon our freedom and our own agency too. So even before you get into a question about consciousness, being faced with agency, that idea that there is another being there, changes the situation for us, right? It changes what's possible. It changes, even for some people, it might change a sense of safety. There are other people who argue that presence is primarily also about our mind and about consciousness. And so um, at times I've worked with and spoken to Tanya Lerman, who's a cultural anthropologist at Stanford. And for her, she literally says presence means mind. When people talk about presences, they're talking about the, the, the feeling that another mind is there with them in the room in some way. But, uh, but I'm not sure that's true of all cases. I think that uh, uh, even at a more basic level, it's to do with that, just that feeling of being, of, of an agent being there. Yeah, Tanya Lerman is actually going to be on the show next week. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, expansion of what you're talking about in, or in, in a somewhat different direction. In the first part of your book, you provide riveting stories of adventurous explorers in extreme environments who push themselves to the limits of human endurance whether to traverse Antarctica by skis or the Atlantic Ocean in a rowboat, uh, some alone and, and others in small groups. And in each of the cases you present, near-death experiences conjure up, or at least that seems to be the explanation, a hallucination of another person accompanying them, typically a benign presence that helps them to resist the temptation to give up on survival. Uh, and the accounts of such things suggest that there are common experiences for uncommon people in even less common circumstances. So I was wondering if you could share with us one of your favorite of those stories. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So so perhaps the, one of my favorites from the book and one that came about through an interview I did for the book was 
with a guy called Luke Robertson. He's actually a friend of mine where he, he married a friend of mine from university. He's a Scottish guy who he was the one who set out to ski to, to the South Pole. And he did this in 2015. He did it off the back of being fitted with a pacemaker at a very young age because it turned out he had a congenital heart problem he didn't know about. During his training for the expedition, he ended up having a benign cyst removed from his brain that at one point they thought was a quite serious tumour. And anybody else might have stopped after the pacemaker or after the tumour, but not Luke. He gets there, he gets the ice. But the reason I was interviewing him was because one day he said to me, are you still working on hallucinations? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm still interested in that. He said, yeah, like, like Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton, the British explorer, famously had some of these experiences during the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition in 1916. And Luke said, yeah, I, I had those, like Shackleton, when I went to the South Pole. And he'd never talked to anybody about it. He'd never really thought about it that much himself. He compartmentalized it. So we had an interview. We sat down and we talked about what happened to him. And a whole range of things happened. We, it's no surprise that people have some really quite unusual experiences in extreme environments that kind of the, the isolation but also the sensory change complete whiteouts from snow and ice it's it's like a machine for conjuring things like visions and other types of hallucinatory phenomena but the really interesting thing about luke was he was joined by essentially two presences out there in antarctica um, that joined him about halfway through his journey it was a period when he was fairly sleep deprived as well and he was falling behind his targets who was running out of food and after a while he starts to get a, this thing behind him that calls his name and he knows that there can't possibly be anybody there shouting his name but there shouldn't be anybody who even knows his name really anywhere close to him and yet he felt like he had to turn back and look over his shoulder every time this name was called because it felt so real that a presence was there and he felt that if he didn't turn back, the presence would catch up with him, tap him on the shoulder, and his heart would stop, his pacemaker would fail. It sounds terrifying. How do, <laughs> how do you continue toward your goal in that, situ- in that condition? Absolutely. And the, the interesting thing about that is that so many of our stories of these presences that come are of the more benign kind, as you described, that they are almost like guardian angels. They get people just over the edge. They're the coach kind of getting you over the line at the end of the race. They're the companion that, that pulls you through at times of adversity. So to some extent, it made no sense that Luke had this spectre chasing him. I mean, he also had the other presence that he had with him was one that actually got him over the line. It was one that kind of awoke him twice when he was very close to giving up. That was almost like your archetypal presence. But Luke is fascinating because he had the chaser. He had this one behind him. And any the rest of us would find it terrifying. But Luke said he felt responsible for this figure, whoever this figure was. It was as if he was leading that figure too. And the more we talked and the more I tried to work out what was really happening there, Luke talked an awful lot about his sense of responsibility to everybody back home. He was actually doing this check for charity. He wanted to raise awareness about things like people with congenital heart conditions. He had a lot of backing and media support. So it was almost like the weight of expectation had created this presence. There wasn't one of these benign spirits. It was something else that his consciousness had projected and created something different. And and I, I guess the reason I like that story is just it highlights how complex it is when we conjure or encounter these these hidden figures, these phantoms, is that they're not straightforward. They're not these cookie-cutter phenomena. They're not all out of a Hollywood film. They're not always going to save you. 
Yeah, and, and I'm wondering if after the fact, and you know, in retrospect, he felt special to have had that experience. I mean, he's already special in you know accomplishing this unbelievable goal, but then having these weird, what turned out to be positive experiences, I and mean, this seems like a kind of real privilege in a way. That's certainly true of other people in similar situations. So, so I mentioned Shackleton earlier. Uh, Shackleton was quite reticent to talk about his experiences at the South Pole, and yet would occasionally obliquely reference the sense in which it went beyond kind of mortal knowledge that, it, that that something had crossed over into another realm that that felt if not special at least significant and um, luke didn't seem to hold those experiences in that way indeed hadn't really thought about them much since he got back and and that's another thing that's really how one just puts it to puts it aside once it's happened i don't know he would have been very tired and he still had to focus on finishing his expedition and clearly once you do all that there must be an extreme sense of relief and maybe you just go there but but for him it, it it's not like it was transformative and indeed in talking to me that was the most he'd ever really explored it now when he talks about that topic he says it was useful to talk through but it wasn't as if he had a kind of epiphany or anything like that and and so it's yeah it it's a curious one. I'd be really interested to know how he feels about it, say, in five years' time or ten years' time, because also some of these things are hard to unpack, right? So in, in your book, you note that roughly 75% of people with uh, a diagnosis of schizophrenia report auditory hallucinations, and that also between 5 and 15% of adults will hear voices at some time in their lives. Now, schizophrenia incidents, my understanding, is only about 1%. But for so for 5 to 15% to have experiences of voices means that it's not necessarily a psychotic phenomenon. It's only a subset of psychotic. When I think the psych- field of psychiatry and psychology tends to assume that, oh, hallucinations, you're psychotic. <laughs> and it's not enough. Yeah, that's right. I think to get a diagnosis of schizophrenia, it's important to say a whole lot of other boxes need to be ticked as well, not least unusual and strong beliefs that some people might call delusions, changes in terms of your day-to-day skills and functioning, and sometimes changes to your thinking and cognition. While I think a lot of people would align hearing voices with schizophrenia, you're absolutely right. Many more people can hear voices in many other contexts, but also schizophrenia can, is a syndromic thing, features many other features too. But that 5 to 15% estimate really does attest to, in the general population, many of us susceptible to having these experiences at some point in our lives. And they can arise through, for many different reasons, it could be changes to sleep, it could be changes to your general health, it could be very kind of transient changes to your mental health. A thing that most people aren't aware of is that psychosis itself can occur in the context of lots of other conditions. It could be anxiety, it could be depression, it could be an eating disorder, if taken to an extreme people would have those experiences too. So it really is something that is much more common than I think people appreciate. But the key thing really is how long is it going on for? Is it something that's really persistent or not? And if it is persistent, then it's more likely to be an example of something like psychosis. And as you say, it also depends on how it affects a person's functioning. So it's maybe not that common to have uh, persistent hallucinations without it interfering with functioning, but it's possible. And I've heard of cases of a a case of a professor at Stanford who hears voices frequently, but is still functioning as a professor. Absolutely. And and I've had the privilege of, of working with and talking to quite a few people who fall into that bracket, who hear voices fairly frequently or have them perhaps for all of their lives. But 
don't use mental health services they don't it's not a problem for them it doesn't affect how they go about living their lives it's something they might draw a lot of meaning and value from they get called quite clunky names in the literature so sometimes they're called non-clinical voice hearers or healthy voice hearers non-psychotic voice hearers but uh, but uh, they are out there it's sometimes hard to encourage people to take part in research because i think because they fear that they're experiences are going to be medicalized and misunderstood but but they're there and they're a very important group to to study and understand and it, it raises the question of whether the stigma of hearing voices is part of what makes it worse for for people oh i'm i think undoubtedly it's still something which is highly stigmatized and at least in the uk we've had lots and lots of different campaigns about raising awareness to do with mental health a lot of there's been a lot of uh, effort to challenge stigma and yet Hearing voices is something where it's very hard to shift the dial and schizophrenia generally, but something about the way it captures the public imagination and fears about loss of control and continence and everything like that, then then hearing voices is the kind of is the mother load really for stigma, I would say. And then the other big variable is the, as we've mentioned before, is how, whether the voices are positive or negative. Are they supportive or are they denigrating? And in schizophrenia, they're almost always denigrating or frightening in some way or threatening. Whereas in the explorer situation, they're more likely to be supportive. That's right. That's right. It's important to say, even for people with a schizophrenia diagnosis, it's highly possible that they might have a positive voice in there. Your average number of voices that somebody hears if they've got a psychotic disorder is three to four and it's quite often that you might have a really dominant level of voice and then one or two others that have slightly different roles or personalities and one of them might be more benevolent or at least less worse so you can get a range of emotions even in people who are having the most kind of distressing experiences but you're right in terms of these kind of experiences where the people uh, encountering outside of kind of clinical context, more often than not, they appear to be positive. And um, in the case of survivors of extreme situations, there is also survivor bias. Though, if you get if you happen to be up a mountain and a, a terrifying voice came to visit you, then did that guy get back down the mountain? We don't know. <laughs> so we don't tend to hear about the kind of bad luck stories of of um, survivors of of. of uh, explorers and their hallucinatory states. Um, I, I, I guess if we had less uh, stigma and explorers were willing to share their experience as it's happening through their you know, wireless uh, connections, then maybe we would hear about it. But as you say, it's so stigmatized that people often don't talk about it at the time. Yeah, but also legends build up and legend and stories are told. And every time you tell a story, it takes a narrative form with certain expectations. And in that, that begins to move inevitably moves you away from the underlying thing that happened in the first place particularly for really ambiguous and unusual situations so we just always have to be mindful of how those things work really i'm not to say that i don't think it's the case that all these mountaineers are disappearing at mountains because they're hallucinating and we just never hear about it but you've got to just got to be aware of it's not simply the case that positive experiences happen over here and negative experiences happen Let's shift now to talk about neurology. And without getting terribly technical, like there's some really fascinating things that you talk about in your book about how these things seem to be maybe what the substrate is for how they happen in the brain. You talk about the temporoparietal junction, that if we interfere with it on the right side, we zoom out from our bodies and suddenly we see, see them from the outside looking in. But if we do tamper with the left, and I say tamper, I guess this happens through epilepsy studies. 
if we tamper from the left, our, our bodies zoom out from us, producing another figure of presence. So you can either ha have an out-of-body experience or you kind of experience of an outer body. <laughs> Two very different experiences. And with epilepsy, sometimes part of the brain needs to be um, destroyed, uh, hopefully as, as small a piece as possible. And so with an open skull, probes places to, to make sure that that part of the brain is not absolutely vital. It's looking to see what can be destroyed, what can't be destroyed, and, and it evokes experiences, which is just really incredible. It's it's like a Gary Larson cartoon where you press the the, the thumb and the leg shoots up or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've explained it very well. But uh, so it's it it's been happening for years that we can sometimes the most direct research we can do on how the brain functions is via uh, intracranial uh, stimulation when people are. They might be due for surgery for epilepsy and just in a pre-surgical phase, usually doing some stimulation just to test that any lesion that you make isn't going to interfere with kind of key functions. And in that window as well, sometimes people will consent for research purposes to be stimulated to see essentially what kind of effects can occur. So a, a really famous example of this was reported in Science in 2006 by a team led by Shaharazi, where uh, a young woman with epilepsy had their, her left temporal parietal junction, her left TPJ, stimulated. And she immediately felt this shadow presence off to one side that mimics her own body position. She didn't know who this figure wasn't clear, quite what gender, perhaps male. At one point, the figure almost felt like it was embracing her, and it didn't feel like it was a particularly nice feeling. But the key thing was this sense of her own body somehow transported. Now, that same team were also the ones to do the research on out-of-body experiences that seem to suggest that the corresponding area in the right hemisphere, the right TPJ, could be associated with some out-of-body experiences for some people who have brain injury affecting those areas too. There, we're starting to get a clue about two areas, what we call homologues in, in research on kind of neuropsychology and, and neurology, two areas that are working similarly but producing different kinds of effects. And the thing we think they're doing is that they're integrating senses from across the brain, auditory, visual, bodily sense to, to create a map of where we should be in space, where we expect to be in terms of our own body position. And that includes things like proprioception as well, a sense of where our muscles are in space. So one idea of what's happening there when we stimulate those areas is we're disrupting that body map. Imagine that we have this kind of blueprint of where we should be in space. Right now, Stuart, you're sat in your chair. Imagine a kind of Tron-style grid saying, here we are, we're in the chair. And when I zap that area, left TPJ, the grid moves. That blueprint moves for you, and suddenly you have a sense, a feeling that you can't articulate, but you have a sense that there's a body there that wasn't there before, and it's actually coming from you in some way. So the, the brain is producing a map of your own body as well as a map of the space that you inhabit. And most of the time they're in, in sync with each other, so you don't really notice it. And it really, this really speaks also to the, um, just the amazing fact that's really hard to grasp for a lot of people, that the world, as we experience it, it has to be fully represented in the brain. We're not just taking it in as it is. We, we, the brain is figuring it out and representing it. So, for instance, visually, if you look at a retina, you see the world is upside down and backwards. And you might say, how can you, does the brain turn it back right side up and forwards? No, it's just that as long as the representation of everything else is also in the same orientation, there's no need to rotate. <laughs> it's just, there's no eye behind the eye looking at the retina. 
No, which is the kind of philosophy of mind objection, sometimes called the Cartesian theory. If we keep stacking up representations that we somehow view, then you're taking a step back each time as to the viewer and who the viewer is. Instead, what our brains are doing is constantly constructing that sense of the outside world. And in more recent years, that's been known as kind of predictive processing or predictive coding, the idea that our brain is almost building a projection, a generative model of what's happening all the time based on our prior expectations. It's our best guess at what's out there. And under extreme conditions or in a, a, a situation of brain damage, those the sync up of those different representations can disengage, is what you're saying. That's true. Or in, what happens is we're introducing uncertainty. The kind of things that we can usually rely on to provide a stable representation of the world, a stable experience of the world, might start to develop cracks. And what we do is we try and fill those cracks with the things we understand, the things that are meaningful for us. And that might be language, it might be faces, it might be people who are significant to us too. In a survival situation, when put under strain, the thing that plugs the gaps is what comes from us. And that might be a family member who, you know, was lost and came back to us right at that moment. It might be, you know, often people recount their mother's voice, their grandmother's voice, kind of just getting them over the line at the right point. So it, it's no accident that actually what hap- if we're constantly generating this world around us, sometimes we have to draw upon more pieces that come from us rather than necessarily the world outside when put under severe strain. Yeah, so this would be a good segue to talk about sleep paralysis, which is also, I think, a form of filling in. Uh, my understanding is that when we go into REM sleep, our brains turn off the motor system of the body in order to not act out our dreams and get into real trouble. And this is a subset of the population. I heard it was 1%. I don't know if that's still an accurate statistic of people experience the sleep paralysis. They're not quite asleep when that happens or they're somehow semi-aware. And then they, the brain fills in a reason to be paralyzed. So in middle ages, it was the devil inhabiting you or uh, attacking you. And in modern times, it's aliens. Alien, aliens are abducting you and bringing you to their spaceship. But it creates, the brain creates a what seems to a, a sleeping mind <laughs> to be a plausible explanation. Yeah, it is. So estimates vary, but some of the more recent ones suggest it's about one in seven adults will actually have sleep paralysis at some point in their lives. And it does seem to be another one of these contexts, which is a real hallucination machine. So over half people, the people who have sleep paralysis will have hallucinatory experiences during that when they're in that locked in phase. And the most common hallucination is a feeling of presence. Those presences are almost unlike any of the other ones we've talked about so far, because they're almost always experienced as being purely malevolent. They're the most consistently evil of the presences. And sometimes it's almost as if it's just a ball of malevolence that people are perceiving in the room with them. Now, cultures across centuries have closed that figure in different ways, whether it's the kind of the nightmare or night hag, or there's the Ogun Oru in, in Yoruba culture in Nigeria that everybody has a story for where this kind of evil spirit comes from. But our brains draw upon kind of cultural ideas that are relevant, so hence things like aliens to sometimes colour that. But it it can still be pretty ambiguous kind of what's happening for people. They don't always have a direct perception of, oh, this is the devil, or I immediately recognise what it is. It's um, Instead, what comes first is more this feeling of very kind of primal dread that this is something that goes beyond their normal knowledge 
And it can be incredibly startling for people, particularly if they don't know that sleep paralysis and the things that come with it are a thing, because it's not something we talk about that much in today conversation or more broadly in popular culture, given how common it is. Yes, I would think it would possibly be helpful for someone who had those experiences to learn that it was from this physiological process, and then they could feel that they're not going crazy. But there are other situations, and I've actually hypnotized two people, not clients, but friends. One was a friend, and one was a friend of a friend, who had an experience of alien abduction. And in both cases, they were very attached to it. They were very, I don't think, I didn't try to talk them to tell them that this is probably sleep paralysis, because it was so meaningful to them. And that's the thing, for some people, it can be transformative. And you do, some people do actually recount these kind of nighttime visit experiences as to be revelatory in a religious way and all this sort of thing. It's, I would say they're not so common compared to the ones that are more deeply unsettling. But you do get some people who almost talk about them in the same way that some people talk about psychedelic experiences changing them, where the kind of going beyond the, the normal also serves to, to shift the frame of how they're understanding or thinking about wider reality. It's, there can be, whatever direction they break, they're certainly powerful experiences. And yeah, it's always interesting to hear people's own stories, interpretations of them. So let's talk now about the presence robot. This is really mind boggling that you can actually induce at least a glimmer of this kind of experience mechanically. So how does that work? This goes back to some of those neurology models. So think about those body maps combining our senses. And I mentioned one sense there, proprioception, when I was describing that, that sense of where our muscles should be there in space. And we know from other research that you can trick the brain in different ways to blur the boundary between self and other when you try to interfere with multisensory integration. So the way all the senses are stuck together it's relatively easy to get, make it go slightly awry. And it turns out that timing is really important. Um, an example was uh, something called the rubber hand illusion. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I, I'll, I'll describe it for your listeners. But essentially, if I was to sit you down at a desk and uh, have your hands flat out in front of you, but I'd hide one of those hands, and right next to it, I'd put a rubber hand. If I stroked with a paintbrush the rubber hand and the hidden hand at exactly the same time, after a while, because you can see the rubber hand, you'd start to feel that the rubber hand is your own. And that's because your brain is feeling a sense of touch and it's seeing the rubber hand being touched at exactly the same time. And it takes those jigsaw pieces, puts them together and goes, that must be my hand. There's no other way. It would be a massive coincidence. That must be mine. And so there what we're doing is we're, we're changing that boundary of, kind of your bodily self. We're saying this new thing, this artificial thing is part of your body. Taking that logic, a, a team in Geneva developed a robot that every time you pushed out in front of you uh, on this particular contraption that kind of, it was a bit like a kind of a, a lever that would attach to your finger, basically tracking your finger movements. So imagine you were punching a pin code, this sort of thing. And then every time your finger pushed out into space, you get prodded in your back. And if you prod it up, you'll get prodded up. And if you move your finger down, prod down, you'll get prodded down as well. And this would happen exactly the same time. This robot would keep doing this for a while. And after a while, the sensation you get is actually that you're touching your own back. Again, because your brain, that's the only thing it can conclude is somehow this would be pretty weird. But based on the timings, I'm touching my own back. Now, what you can do is then interfere with that again. Having built up that association of timing, that feeling that it's you touching your own back. 
if you then make the touches out of sync, suddenly people get this jolt. They start to feel that something else strange is going on. They start to feel that somebody else must be there touching them instead, even though they know it's just this robot contraption. And this produces this hallucinatory feeling of presence for quite a few people. I've tried it myself. I have to say, it didn't quite make me hallucinate. It's an uncanny experience. It almost felt like kind of dancing with a partner who didn't know the steps. Right? Like once you fall out of sync and you, the thing is you slow down to try and help them catch up, but obviously then they're going to go slower because they're deliberately out of sync with you and it can make you feel frustrated and agitated and slightly off. But then I've literally never hallucinated anything. I'm the least hallucinatory person in the world. So I'm not a good test subject, but a large proportion of people are very susceptible on this machine and feel like they have this presence that suddenly arrives through disruption of the robot. It's amazing that those, those uh, experiences happen, whether you know that it's about the setup or not. And, and then the rubber hand will, will work whether you know it's a rubber hand or not. It just, it's, we're wired in such a way that, that it's, it's convincing for a lot of people. Absolutely, because we don't usually have to think about where our limbs are, how our senses stick together, are they in time or that not. We'll notice as soon as something goes awry. But in terms of those gut feelings and those reflexes and reactions to how the senses uh, integrate, that's something which is unconscious. It's something that we don't get a say in. And so even if you know, even if you know the magic of what's going on, like you'll still get the feeling you can't choose to step out of it. Yeah, so we, we talk about the five senses, but then it turns out that there are more than five senses. And that's not the same as extrasensory perception at all. But uh, things like proprioception, knowing where your limbs are, we're generally not really aware of that feedback. We just take it for granted. That's we, right. We intend to move in a certain way or move to a certain place, and we do. But we don't have to tell our proprioceptors to change. That's right. And I think that's almost where some of the feelings of uncanniness come from is that we've lost the language for talking about those other aspects of the senses. If we, if you need kind of the, the language of proprioception in a way and, and how our bodies are moving and what it means to then understand how is it possible that you could have an experience of presence where in a way without proprioception, essentially it's a paradox. How do you perceive or feel that somebody is there that you can't touch, you can't see, you can't hear? But instead, if we think about it as a, some sort of kind of transposition of a bodily sense, a disruption to senses like proprioception, it becomes less paradoxical. In fact, it becomes scientifically plausible. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with J.J. Gibson, the perceptual psychologist, but he made a distinction between sensation and perception, where perception is the uh, rendering of information about, about the world, and sensation is the feeling you have in your body as you're finding out about the world. So for instance, when you touch something rough with your finger, you feel the texture of the thing that you're feeling, but you also feel roughness on your skin and you could focus on one versus the other. And with something like proprioception, maybe there isn't a sensation, it's just perception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly, yeah. Or, or equally that you end up with sensations that you can't, you don't know how to talk about, you don't know how to describe. And, and that's, that's certainly something in my conversations with people with psychosis that comes up again and again that, they don't even try to describe presence because they think it makes them sound mad. They can't, they don't know the words really to, to describe what's happening for them. And if anything, it's easier to talk about things like voices or delusions in the clinic, not least because that's what the psychiatrist or the psychologist expects them to talk about. They don't expect them to talk about these hidden figures 
And there is, quite honestly, there is a problem where sometimes people would just think it's paranoia. They think, oh, you, you think people are in the room with you. You think that people are upstairs because a lot of people will feel suspicious or paranoid in the context of psychosis. But really, when you if you delve deeper and you spend time with these people and talk to them, it's something that they feel. They feel it in their bones. It's not just a, it's not really a thinking thing. So would you say that there are kind of pre- prerequisites for experiencing these things? That there's a strong needs to be a strong set of needs, stress, or expectations, and that they're not not talking about psychotic experiences, but let's say the non-psychotic ones. I think sometimes the problem with pre the language of prerequisites is suggests that there's a certain set of necessary conditions, and then the way I think about it is instead there's a variety of sufficient conditions that can create these phenomena, and sometimes some of those will be to do with the person, and some of those will be to do with the situation, but. We know that states of extreme adversity, both mental and physical stress, can induce these phenomena. We know that social isolation essentially can as well. And, well, so something like kind of spiritual or religious beliefs, one might think would be perhaps a prerequisite. But actually, quite often you find discontinuities too. You find people almost seeking spiritual presence or invoking spiritual presence in some way. And that can shape what people experience. But you don't get to choose what kind of comes through the door once that door is opened. And quite often people end up with quite ambivalent and ambiguous experiences, even if there was something they tried to will. So so that's one where the state of belief and state of mind that somebody might have is going to be an important factor. But I, I'm not too sure that it really would be a causal factor per se, and, and certainly in the, the way that some other people might think. Right. It's not that clean causally. I guess you can have any number of multiple ways of getting to the experience, it sounds like. Yeah, that's right. And I just, I know I've talked to multiple people now where they would have loved to be visited by their grandfather or somebody like that, or they really had a certain person in mind. And sometimes they get that experience, but then sometimes they end up with experiences that they don't want or they're visited by people that they don't want to be visited by <laughs> and it's it's a challenging situation because you it's about giving up of agency as well sometimes you get the wrong order delivered at the restaurant right so. <laughs> uh, that's right yeah yeah happens all the time you, you mentioned about religious experiences and there was one in particular that i thought was really fascinating it's called tulpa mansi i think if i'm pronouncing that in tibetan buddhism that there's a long-term painstaking meditative practice that creates a separate conscious being at least that's the belief system and it's somehow, in some way, akin to a fiction writer creating a character that takes on a life of its own. And maybe it's also akin to the imaginary companions or friends of childhood. But this is a, a culturally very positive thing to do. It's the opposite of being stigmatized, I would think. It's it's celebrated, maybe. I don't know. I think people, some people are quite suspicious of this phenomenon as well, or and or medicalizing and stigmatizing of it. So it's so yeah, this is a it was really not an internet craze, but an internet subculture that kind of grew up around the kind of early twenty tens, really through forums like Reddit, where people started sharing tips on how you could almost like will into being via imagination and something akin to almost like meditative practice, these entities that would talk back in your mind and seem to be sentient. And they took their name Tulpas from this practice from Tibetan Buddhism that was written about by scholars in the kind of early 20th century. It's not really clear that what Buddhism would call Tulpas and Tulpamansi is really the thing that gets called that now. 
because really it's quite a new practice that or new kind of cultural phenomenon people trying to do this and it and it almost grew out of people wanting to have interactions with imaginary characters sometimes even characters from media so as i mentioned in the book some of the first people to do this were bronies people who were obsessed with my little pony the, the cartoon and it's almost doing this thing just to see if you can you create this imaginary friend that will talk and, and will think and seemingly has a mind of its own i think because of the stereotypes that people would bring to that where it's coming from as a kind of reddit thing and a being about media and about animation and all this sort of thing that people assume that tulpamancers are all of a particular kind of person and it's true that they're mostly white males in the kind of late teens and early 20s but actually for those who do go on and take part in research studies and things like that it's not necessarily the case that they are necessarily introverted or people who are more liable to mental health problems or this sort of thing it takes a lot of skill and practice to really do it in the ways that they're describing as well it takes a lot of commitment so it's it's quite an unusual thing and like I say I, I think there are similarities actually if you look close to what fiction writers are doing when they try and create new characters but culturally we accept the latter a lot more for the cachet that goes with it I think yeah, and I wonder if there'd be a, an accusation of narcissism because this is a character created for an audience of one. <laughs> no one else can interact. True, and it might. Yeah, it might, I think a lot of people find it hard to know the appeal. But it's. I mean, for me, it's just it's a continuing fascination and bafflement at the capacities of the mind to create something which at least feels like there can be another agency in there. There can be a, one skull and two minds that can also interact and. It's something that I would say mainstream psychology and cognitive neuroscience still hasn't really got to grips with. We do, if you study things like social cognition and theory of mind and how we understand other minds, there's something still quite straightforward about the way we think about that in terms of, oh, I just got to work out what Stuart means when he says X or what he might like for dinner and all this. And it's never really about phantom minds, imaginary minds that never existed and yet can be experienced and interacted with in such a vivid and, and personally meaningful way for people this is those are like the true limits of the mind and i don't think we're anywhere near understanding them really i probably annoy quite a lot of my colleagues saying that but i really do think we're in the foothills of understanding the the, the capacities of kind of imaginative worlds and imaginative people Let's shift now to talking about the International Hearing Voices Movement, which I think was founded by the Dutch psychiatrist Marius Rahm and one of his patients, Patsy Haig. And, and they asserted, why assume that someone's experiences are pathological just because you don't share them? So it's a real kind of protest and challenge to the rest of us. That's right. Yes. This was, so Marius is a, a psychiatrist who was, who was challenged famously by Patsy to think, differently about her voices and not to think of them primarily through a, a, a medical lens and really prompted by that challenge Marius started a group which just put a, a call out initially among people in the Netherlands to say have you had these kinds of experiences before and do, do you feel like you need to use psychiatric services mental health services and a lot of people came forward and said no we don't and we interpret it this way in a spiritual way a religious way and really things snowballed and grew from there. And now we have Intervoice, the International Hearing Voices Movement, which is run by lots of really committed people who are very pluralistic in terms of people's interpretations of what's happening for them. They're all more or less joined by a view that 
mainstream mental health services haven't understood them and didn't meet their needs. But in terms of how they interpret what the voices mean, that's different from person to person. And for some people, there will be things like aliens. It's a very broad church in that sense. But yeah, via the work I did at Durham as part of Hearing the Voice, we did a lot of work in parallel to the Hearing Voices movement and attended their congresses and conferences, had them visit the university and co-authored work with them too. So there was a lot of opportunity to learn from people with lived experience of these phenomena and, and think differently about, again, just how mainstream psychology and psychiatry would approach topics like voices. Yeah, and I think the big challenge in uh, dealing with hallucinations in the schizophrenia context is how to treat the voices as not necessarily pathological in and of themselves, but it's because of the negativity of them, the, the frightening or persecutory, and that's a big piece of what makes them so debilitating. And in your book, you talk about uh, different projects that help people with schizophrenia experience their voices in a less negative way, or at least to change, actually change the voice, not just to experience them as less negative, but for them to become less negative. And you talk about avatar training and, and also low-tech role-playing techniques where the therapist takes on the voice and helps the uh, patient to, to gradually shift the voice from negative to positive. That's right, yeah. So the, it's been a bit of a trend in the UK and Western Europe for the past... I want to say 10 or 15 years that there's been more interested in these dialogue based techniques. Actually voice dialoguing arose just out of the context, out of a kind of general psychotherapy um, practice, but was particularly picked up by the hearing voices movement as being something that was true to their values about how you might have beneficial and therapeutic change via interaction with voices. But yet in the UK, there's also there's relating therapy, which is a essentially role play therapy as you describe involving a clinical psychologist and then the the really well-known one is avatar therapy where a psychotherapist working with a voice hearer will create an audio visual avatar of the voice that people hear or the main voice they hear the voice that they find most difficult to work with and then that avatar is used in subsequent dialogues and role plays essentially to uh, try and give people the tools to be able to interact with their voices and be more assertive or stand up for themselves or not feel diminished. And, and sometimes people describe that this also changes the kind of the underlying voice phenomena. Now, all of those techniques have been controversial over the years. I think there's a historical worry that asking people to engage with their voices is tantamount to asking them to elaborate on these experiences or maybe be considered collusion with those experiences. But I think it's a good thing that we seem to have shifted away from that a little bit, at least in the UK. I've heard that it's not really the same situation in the US and it's probably, we might be a few years away from using those techniques more, but I think there's a lot to say in support of them really. And for some people who'd be hearing voices, distressing voices for 20 years or so, they they found avatar therapy extremely useful for giving them new tools really. I think that if there were a way of depathologizing the voices, but not by saying, oh, the, what you're experiencing is fine. It's obviously not fine if they're distressing. It is possible to work on the distressing aspect, maybe, rather than trying to get rid of them or trying to ignore them. Because I, I think the current state of affairs in the U.S. is that, uh, you, I think you're right, the, the experience of hallucinations or delusions are not really engaged with particularly. They're treated as uh, just a sign that things are bad. And then they're, they're medicated away to whatever extent medication can get rid of them, but usually it doesn't fully, and usually at a very high price of side effects. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's part of the worry. Uh, part of the problem, really, is that antipsychotics are just about good enough at diminishing some of the, exper- the experiences enough that d- they are deemed manageable, and clearly alongside a, a strong side effect profile that people find they have a big impact on their lives. But it, for some people, the effect of antipsychotics is a sign that okay we've solved the voices problem or something like that we don't need to explore these things more but in terms of supporting people to have meaningful lives and to be able to grow through what those voices are and what they mean and and where they fit in somebody's life given that they might not go fully away as you describe then I think we're always going to need other kinds of techniques that are more exploratory and more relational and approaching things in a different way. And, and it may be that people with schizophrenia have a, a talent, in a sense, for experiencing hallucinations, which if they didn't have the other factors that um, kind of push in the negative direction, it could just be something seen as a benefit. But because they've had the other uh, kind of negative factors, and we don't really know what those are, whether it's environment or viruses or prenatal, who knows. But the being able to experience voices can be seen as inherently just a skill in a way. And just by analogy, I've had clients with dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder. And the way I usually approached it, and not that I have very many because it's not that common, is that the ability to experience different personality strands is actually quite adaptive in early childhood because usually the person has had really horrendously abusive conditions in childhood. And by being able to split themselves up, they actually were able to preserve all the pieces of their personality and that as they get stronger, they won't need to split up as much or maybe not at all eventually, but rather than think of themselves, I have multiple personalities, I'm, I'm as crazy as it gets. And how awful would that be to, to believe that? Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of truth in that sense of it gives people a, a way to live and a way to carry on. And then therapeutic change is about kind of reintegration, isn't it? But without uh, invalidating what's happened for people and how they've how they've responded because sometimes the even when we talk about things like defense mechanisms or coping strategies or responses to trauma in that way it can still feel like people are being blamed doubly that they're, they're being blamed for not responding in the right way for responding pathologically to a trauma and actually recognizing the realness of people's experience and what their mind has done and had to do to help them survive is a really important thing. It raises the question about what do we mean by adaptive? So in, in the Explorer situation, the voices are clearly can be adaptive because it's giving them the support they need to get through and to survive. But the question is, can they still be adaptive? And let's say the psychotic experience, even though they're highly negative, can they be negative and adaptive at the same time? And that's, I don't know if it's just semantics or if it's a real question, but I, I, I guess I like to think that just as, for instance, anxiety, the capacity for anxiety is absolutely adaptive. Of course, it can become so extreme that you become paralyzed by it, but you have to have the capacity or you'd be never avoiding danger. Absolutely, yeah. Safety behaviors and anxiety do keep people safe. They're just debilitating in many other ways. And But we could think about relationships that we have with people that where people are protective, but sometimes overly protective, and then it becomes controlling. You know, that sometimes a certain kind of relationship is what we need perhaps for a given situation but not for the rest of it and yet it's then very hard to step out of that 
I think it's perfectly possible that some things can be both negative and pathological and yet adaptive because it might have been the only adaptation that was available at the time. You know, it's, uh, it might have been the only option, but it comes with pros and cons. There are things that started out as adaptive and then became maladaptive because the situation changed. Or that you grow and the thing that the protector doesn't grow with you. Exactly. So let's talk just for, we have only a couple of minutes left, but rethink psychosis, also, I, I guess, called psychosis out of the box, outside the box. It's a website that collects accounts of psychosis that don't conform to the expected stereotypes and models that researchers, clinicians, and society have of it. So it's a kind of a compendium. And I guess it's not trying to take a stand one way or the other. It's just putting it all out there. That's right. And trying as well to do it in a way that doesn't have to go via research studies or clinicians or different structures of expertise. It's essentially, it's peer learning and peer support and it's coming from the grassroots in terms of people with lived experience and that psychosis out of the box published the the first report while i was writing presence and what it had done is it had called for experiences of presence it had asked people to talk about these aspects of psychosis that just don't get talked about that much and aren't picked up by general clinical scales and interviews and they got some really valuable responses from people with psychosis trying to describe what presence means for them. It was both a a support, but also a a guide that I was on the right track in terms of what I was trying to understand when this report came about. And and since then, I'd be very pleased to say that I've been working a little bit with Shannon Pagden, who's one of the authors of that report, who's um, just, uh, she's an an MSU student at um, University of Pittsburgh, but has been a, a lived experience researcher and organizer And for her, I know that providing a better story for what we mean by presence and how we support people with that is really key for her. Um, Watch the space. I'm sure she's going to be producing many more important reports like Psychosis Outside the Box in the future. So I'm wondering if at some point the professional group of people will make use of the information from Rethink Psychosis, the the information that's not filtered professionally yet can maybe still be used professionally later on? I think so. I, I think in the first instance, the key thing that it would be useful for in a psychotherapy context is just normalization. For somebody who thinks they're the first person to have had these experiences, then actually those sorts of resources are really key for saying, no, actually, these are the kinds of things that are happening to other people too, and these are the solutions that they found. So a key thing I haven't mentioned is part of that report, they ask people to talk about their own strategies, the ways in which they cope and understand these experiences. Sharing that kind of information at quite an early stage for people who are in distress and trying to make sense of their own experiences is really helpful. And I think even though it wasn't necessarily you know, intended in that way, I think a lot of clinicians and researchers will be using those sorts of resources as much as they can. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on to delving in. Ben Alderson Day, a professor of psychology at Durham University in the UK, researching the phenomena of voice hearing and unusual sensory experiences since 2012, and the author of Presence, The Strange Science and True Stories of the Unseen Other. So thank you so much. Thank you, Stuart. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air 
and to continue to grow in cyberspace.